thanks for tuning in to this week's message on the Antioch Indie Podcast. We're a church that exists to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to make others great. We hope you encounter Jesus today while you listen to this message. Have an amazing day. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. I'm excited to be together this morning. Obviously, the circumstances for why we're having to do this are not great, but just so thankful for the opportunity that we still get to be together in this uh, interesting, kind of abnormal way, but just so thankful that God is still going to be moving and speaking to us as a church, and God is moving in the world, moving in our lives. Um, I just believe that right now, this is an incredible opportunity in this time for us as the people of God to, to be the church, to shine big, to love really big, and I want to make sure that we continue to stay focused on Jesus so that we do that. And even just this morning, you tuning into this is so important because as we connect with God, as we hear from His Word, and we are filled with the life of Jesus, as we get full, it means that we are going to have something to give the world around us uh, that is just in such need of hope, of joy, of life, and of courage in a time of fear and unknown and uncertainty. So, so thankful that you're here with us this morning, and uh, I hope you are enjoying the warmth of your home. Um, I don't know if you are by yourself or if you are with some friends gathered at all or if it's just you or your family, but uh, we are still going to be a note-taking church, uh, even in digital church, so I want you to pull out your Bibles, pull out your notes, and uh, when you get your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, As we jump in, the last thing I want to do as we get started, as you turn your Bible open, I want to make sure that we do our prayer that we do every week as a church. So uh, I want you to shout it with me like you mean it, just like we always do, because it's still true, it's still good for us, it's still going to stir faith in us this morning. So let's do this together. Today is a good day. Jesus is alive, He is good, and He is here. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Come and do what only you can do. We love you, and we expect to meet with you. Amen. If you are with somebody, turn to them, greet them. Don't give them a high five. Just elbow. I hit the microphone. Here we go. It's all right. Um, If you are part of our church, you know that something that we say at the beginning of our services every week is that we love our Bibles here at Antioch, and we do. We do love our Bibles, and um, if we were together, you would have a Bible underneath the seat that you're sitting in. Hopefully now you have a Bible in your lap. You probably have a Bible on your phone in different translations and versions and languages even and font sizes and colors. We got Bibles everywhere, and I'm so thankful for that. And I know that for me, I do, I love, I love my Bible. It's upside down. I love my Bible. Uh, this and uh, my headphones are kind of the two things that I have that are off limits for the kids to touch. Um, I don't really trust them with this or my headphones. And that, that, other than that, they can kind of have free reign. Um, Heather actually got this rebound for me, um, I don't know, about a year ago or something like that, because I've had it for a while, and uh, it was sort of falling apart. The cover came off. And uh, maybe you've heard the, the phrase, I heard somebody say, you know, if you find somebody whose Bible's falling apart, it means their life isn't. And that sounds really good, but I don't think they'd met me before. So Anyways, here we are. So I want to share a message with you this morning. You can write this at the top of your notes. I want to share a message with you titled, I don't understand my Bible. I don't understand my Bible. Us Christians are kind of notorious, I think, for loving the Bible, for believing the Bible, for talking about the Bible, 
but not exactly reading the Bible. Um, the Bible is kind of long. It's a little bit complicated. and We've all got a lot going on in our lives. Sometimes it's easier to just listen to a sermon or listen to a podcast. And if we do get around to reading the Bible, if we do prioritize the time, if we do kind of decide whatever random place we're going to start reading in, even if you do all of that, the Bible can be really hard to understand. And if you are anything like me, sometimes it's hard to know what's going on. It's hard to know what I just read. What do I do with what I just read? And when you do get around to reading the Bible and then it confuses you, if you're anything like me, you start thinking about all of the really good Christians that you know of in your life. Or even if you don't know many good Christians, you imagine that there's some out there. And they're good Christians. And you know that they're good Christians because like you, they read their Bible today. But unlike you, they probably read more of it than you did. They probably understood more of it than you did. And of course they did because they are good Christians. And that's what good Christians do. They read a lot of the Bible and they understand all of it. But meanwhile, over here is me or you fumbling through this thing. And if we're really honest, sometimes feeling like even when I do read it, I end up with some more questions than I do answers. When we don't understand the Bible, we don't read the Bible. And when we don't read the Bible, we don't know what the Bible says. And when we don't know what the Bible says, we don't really know what we believe or why we believe it. And when we don't know what we believe or why we believe it, we don't live it out. And when we don't live it out, we don't experience the love and the power and the presence of God. And when we don't experience the love and the power and the presence of God, the world around us doesn't experience it either. The Center for Bible Engagement uh, did a study a few years ago about the influence of the Bible on an individual, on kind of moral actions, and centered around what kind of impact does the Bible really have on a person's spiritual growth. And they found that scripture engagement more reliably predicts moral behavior and spiritual growth than any other traditional measure of spirituality, even including things like church attendance and even prayer. They found that there was no statistical difference between those who read or listen to the Bible zero times a week and those who read or listen to the Bible one to three times a week. As part of the study, people were polled um, about different temptations and behaviors in their life, kind of stuff that us Christians would say, yeah, we shouldn't do that. God doesn't want us doing those sorts of things. They were polled about those types of behaviors and, and, and if they engaged with them or didn't engage with them, even as self-proclaimed Christians. And they realized in this study that there was no difference in behavior between people who read the Bible zero times a week and those who read the Bible one to three times a week. And I highlight this because I know that I've felt like this before, and I talk to so many people who have felt this at different times. Sometimes we question the power of reading the Bible, the importance of reading the Bible, because in our experience, you know, we go through maybe these rhythms in life where we squeeze in reading a few verses a couple times a month, or we go a couple of weeks where we read the Bible a few times a week, or maybe even every day for a couple of weeks. But when we look at that day that we've read the Bible, or even those couple of weeks when we read the Bible, you don't always see like a massive influence of the Bible. You don't see massive impact or transformation right away. And when that happens, you can be left wondering, okay, I did it, but nothing changed. So what's the big deal with all of this? The study showed that there was no difference between people who 
uh, engage the Bible zero to three times a week. But when uh, the differences became immediately dramatic when somebody read the Bible or engaged with the Bible four or more times a week. So there was really no difference, pretty flat line, zero to three times a week. But once somebody started reading the Bible four times a week, things started to spike and change drastically. So listen to some of this. When someone read the Bible four or more times a week, Drinking to excess went down 62%. Viewing pornography went down 60%. Sex outside of marriage went down 60%. Lashing out in anger, down 30%. Gossiping, down 28%. Lying, down 28%. Neglecting family, down 26%. Overeating and mishandling money, both went down 20%. Those are crazy. It's amazing numbers. The Bible also engagement also showed in these statistics and through this study that when we engage the Bible, it produces a lot more peace and joy in our life. It doesn't just alter our behavior, but it starts producing peace and joy by reducing different emotional struggles that a lot of us experience. So listen to this. Receiving, reflecting on, responding to God's Word four or more times a week in this study decreased a person's odd of struggling with these issues. Feeling bitter went down 40%. Thinking destructively about yourself or others, down 32%. Feeling like you had to, they had to hide what they feel or do, so shame and guilt and all that influence in our life, down 32%. Difficulty forgiving others, down 31%. Discouragement, down 31%. Loneliness, down 30%. Difficulty forgiving yourself, down 26%. Fear and anxiety, down 14%. Listen to this quote. This is the last thing. I know this is, I'm hitting this a lot, but this is amazing to me. It says this, over the years, we have asked about virtually every spiritual practice common in Christianity, and none has been able to predict spiritual growth the way Bible engagement does. The, practice we've, the practices we've considered include prayer, Bible engagement, meditation, fasting, church attendance, Sunday school, Bible study, small groups, reading nonfiction books, reading fiction books, listening to Christian music, mission trips, and even going to Christian school. So in all of those things, nothing predicts the impact of spiritual growth like Bible engagement. Now I know a lot of talk about how we should read the Bible more centers around the fact that we should read the Bible. And that's fine, we should read the Bible. But if you're like me, when I hear some of these results, the reason I talk about them so much is that that makes me really want to read the Bible. Even if I don't even know anything about the Bible, if you tell me there's something I can do to make all of those numbers happen in my life, sign me up. And I hope that it makes you want to do the same thing. So if we're gonna read the Bible, I think that we need to understand what the Bible is. Because I think that oftentimes we misunderstand what we read in the Bible because we misunderstand what the Bible is to begin with. So I first wanna hit on a couple of things that the Bible isn't. The Bible is not just a collection of nice bedtime stories for kids. Sometimes we think that it is, and if you've ever approached the Bible or read the Bible expecting it to be just some nice fairy tales you find out pretty quick that there's actually a lot of the Bible that's like pretty R-rated. The Bible isn't a book of motivational and inspirational quotes. The Bible is incredibly motivating. It is incredibly inspiring, but it's not those things in the way so much that it's like feel-good quotes that'll make all your haters go away and lead you to entrepreneurial success and help you max out your bench press at the gym. It's motivating and inspiring more in the way of putting life into perspective. It brings clarity to purpose. It helps us understand what it means to really actually live a meaningful life. 
And it can be confusing if we approach the Bible anticipating that just wherever I flop open to, I'm going to land on a beautiful one-sentence axiom that will warm my heart on a cold day. And then that doesn't happen. It can be a little bit confusing. Now, wherever you turn in the Bible, this is the Word of God. Wherever you turn, God is speaking to you. Wherever you turn, God is revealing himself to you. And when you see God, when you hear God, he will transform who you are and the way that you live your life. But sometimes we miss those things because we expect the Bible to be something that it isn't. So what is the Bible? I think a lot of people generally understand that the Bible has a lot of stories in it. And there are a lot of stories in the Bible. But it's not just stories. There's lots of different types of literature in the Bible. And so some of it reads very differently than other parts of it. The Bible is made up of a lot of little stories. There's actually 66 books that make up this Bible, written by 40 different authors, used by God over the span of 1,500 years to put the Bible together. As you read the Bible, there's poems, there's wisdom literature, there's metaphor, there's prophecy, there's letters of correspondence, letters of instruction, letters of correction, letters of uh, rebuke, and all of these sorts of different things are all compiled in this one book. And yes, there are a lot of stories. As you read through the Bible, some books are, are one story in and of themselves. Like if you read the book of Ruth or, or Esther, you kind of get one story front to end in that book. Some books are, are full of dozens of stories. If you read First and Second Kings, there's stories of loads of kings and nations and wars and families and generations and covers a huge range of time. Some of the books don't tell the whole story at all. They're just part of a story. Like if you look at a lot of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, they're all kind of written in different literary styles. Some of them, even within the same book, have different styles going on all at the same time. And none of them are telling the whole story, but they're all telling parts of the story of Israel's journey of following God. Some of it is historical fact. Some of it is kind of prophetic insight to God's perspective on a part of the story. Some of it is poetry. Some of it's metaphor. Some of it references stuff in the past. Some of it is prophecy about, I mean, it's all over the place. And some of the books are just even smaller parts of bigger stories going on at the immediate time. So this is like a lot of the New Testament letters. Uh, they, they don't tell the whole story in themselves, but there's bits of stories that are all going on at the same time. So, you know, a lot of these New Testament letters, they were written by one person, addressed to another individual or a group of people at a given time. Oftentimes, these letters reference other individuals that the author knew and the original audience knew, but you and I as the readers don't know these people or, or what these exact current events are that are being addressed or some of the cultural context of what's going on. Sometimes these letters re reference sort of relational dynamics between the author and the audience or other people going on, stuff that you and I aren't necessarily privy to because we weren't there in the moment. So when you read the New Testament even, sometimes it seems like you're just getting pieces of, pieces of small stories that are all part of the bigger story of God building his church on the earth. So the Bible is big. The Bible is complex. And yes, let's be real. Parts of the Bible are confusing. But we don't have to be intimidated. We don't have to be intimidated by the Bible. 
I think that as we approach the Bible, as we begin to venture into understanding the Bible, I believe that the biggest key to understanding the Bible is to approach it with the first understanding that what makes the Bible in all of its complexities, in all of its styles and its authors and settings, what makes it so dynamic, so powerful, is that all of this all together tells one big story. And that story starts in the very beginning. I had you open up to Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning. If I didn't say that, I meant to, but here we are. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Genesis, the story begins. The big story of God begins with God taking disorder and darkness and he creates order and beauty and he makes a world where life can flourish and he makes humanity. He makes humanity in his image, which means he gives humanity from the beginning a role and a purpose. Humanity is to be the reflection of God's character in the world and to be his representative and to rule the world on his behalf. That's the task that God gives humanity from the beginning. He makes this world a place where life can flourish and God does something incredibly important right at the very beginning, a very important understanding the story of the Bible is he blesses humanity. He speaks a blessing over humanity and then he gives humans this garden where they can begin, where they can begin cultivating relationship with God, relationship with one another and relationship with the world around them. Right off the bat, God gives humans kind of this dignity of making a choice. He, and it's represented in this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and God has defined good and evil, but this choice for humanity is, are they going to do things God's way and trust Him? Or are they going to define good and evil for themselves and, and do things that way? And, and it's clear from the beginning that the, the cost of that decision, should they decide to do it on their own, is a very high cost. Because in choosing to turn away from God, it's the choice to rebel against the giver of life himself and against God. And in doing that, it's a choice to embrace death. In Genesis chapter 3, we meet this snake, this creature that, and honestly, we don't really know a whole lot about, but we know that this creature is a, is a creature in rebellion towards God, and it really wants humanity to rebel against God with it. And uh, he kind of creates this uh, narrative that's a spin off of what is actually going on. He tells humanity that the tree won't bring death at all, but that it's actually the way of life, and it's actually the way to become like God. Now, if we understand what's already happened in the story so far, we know that this story that the snake is telling makes no sense. Humans are already created in the image of God. They already have life in relationship with the giver of life. They don't need to become like God because they already carry the image of God. So this story makes no sense, but humanity still decides to seize autonomy, take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And as the story continues to unfold, things spiral out of control very quickly. Immediately, relationship is broken on a human level as they cover themselves and, and hide from one another because they can no longer trust one another. Intimacy with God is immediately broken as they run and hide. God comes into the garden to pursue them and says, where are you? And seeks them out, but they don't respond to him. 
And as this dialogue unfolds and the consequences of their sin, there's sort of this short poem that describes the dialogue between God and humanity as he explains the consequences for their decision to turn away from him. In the midst of God explaining these consequences, he actually makes this really incredible promise, even in the midst of all of this pain. He makes this promise to the woman. He says that a descendant will come from the woman who will deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. But then the promise has this interesting part where he says, as the descendant deals a blow to the snake's head, the snake is actually also going to deal a lethal blow to the heel of this rescuer. It's really interesting, but one thing we see right from the beginning is that God is a God of grace. Humanity has just rebelled against God, turned from him and embraced death, and yet the first thing he does is he runs in to pursue them and promises to rescue them. <clears throat> All of this doesn't erase the consequences of their actions, though, and we realize as we read this story that all of this does in fact lead to death. As you continue to read this story, the story of the Bible traces sort of the widening ripple effect of rebellion. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. It traces the widening ripple effect of humanity's rebellion and the fracturing of human relationships with each other and with God at every level. The next story we get is about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. He runs away, builds this whole city where violence and vengeance reigns. And then that develops into this guy, Lamech, who leads the whole thing, who sings a song about how he's worse than Cain ever was. And it's just kind of, what are we even talking about? The story begins to continue, spiraling out of control to the point where God <coughs> becomes broken with grief. Uh, humanity is ruining the world. They're ruining each other. And God is so grieved that he decides he's going to wash away all of this evil with the flood. But he decides that he's going to protect humanity. He's going to protect humanity. Thank you to our studio audience this morning. So much better. God decides that he is going to protect humanity by restoring a man named Noah. As the flood comes and the flood goes, God brings Noah out of the ark and he sort of commissions Noah as this new Adam. He brings back the promise to humanity that he gave to Adam and gives it to Noah. Now God is going to bring somebody out of Noah. But just like Adam, Noah fails and Noah's sons fail and the spiral happens all over again. This leads to the foundation of a city called Babylon where they think they're great because they have great technology to build bricks and to make a statement about the greatness of humanity. They're going to build a tower for themselves and arrogance towards God, just like in the garden. When God scatters uh, humanity at the Tower of Babel, again, the spiral continues. God continues to give humans the chance to do the right thing, with, to do the right thing with this world, to do the right thing with each other, but humans keep ruining it. We define good and evil for ourselves, and so we contribute to the world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But these stories, as they all follow the same storyline, all also contain amazing hope. God has promised that one day, a descendant will come, a wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. Despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his people. That's the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and it brings us to Genesis chapter 12. I want to encourage you to turn to verses 1 through 3. 
After the Tower of Babel in Babylon, we get some genealogies. We're not going to do the whole Bible. Just stick with me for a few more minutes. This is important for, uh, groundwork for us. As Genesis 11 ends, we get some genealogies out of this, the scattering at Babylon. And in Genesis 12, we meet somebody a few generations down the line named Abraham. And Genesis 12 starts with this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make out of you a great nation, and I will bless you. There's this concept of God blessing humanity again. And I'll make you great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in all the families, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, Genesis 12 opens up with God making a promise to humanity to bless them. God promises this land, Canaan, to Abraham. He promises that he's going to make him great and bless him, connecting back to the original blessing at the beginning. And in this promise, God again makes clear not only that he blesses, but why? Why does God bless his people? It tells us at the end of verse 3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is saying, I want to raise up a family to bless so that I can show the rest of the families on earth and the rest of the nations on earth what I'm really like. He wants to use this family to bless the whole world. The rest of Genesis focuses on Abraham and his descendants of his family. It goes down to his son Isaac and his son Jacob and then his 12 sons. And as we follow the storyline, as you read through the rest of Genesis, each generation is marked by repeated failure. They mess up their lives. They jeopardize the promise of God. But God remains faithful, rescuing them over and over again from themselves, reaffirming his commitment to bless them and to bless the nations of the earth, even despite their failures. Now, these guys are the fathers of our faith, important characters all through the Bible. And when you read their stories, you realize, I don't really even want to be like any of these guys. And honestly, that's the whole point. The story shows that people are selfish. We do evil, but that God doesn't leave the world to its own devices. He remains faithful and determined to bless his people despite their failures. God has made a promise to the woman in Genesis 3 that he will rescue humanity. He connects that promise to the line of Abraham. And Genesis ends by that promise being connected to Judah, Jacob's fourth son, when God says Judah will become the line of Israel's rulers. And one day, God says again, a king will come who will command the obedience of all the nations to fulfill God's promise and restore God's blessing to the whole earth. And then Genesis ends. These promises are kind of hanging out there and hope is unrealized. As you turn the page of Genesis and continue to read the Old Testament, the story, same old story of Genesis old, unfolds time and time again. And as you read the Old Testament, this is why so many stories don't go well. This is why they don't have good things in them. This is why so many stories in the Old Testament, they're not about good people doing good things and they don't have good endings because the big story of God is not that people are good and God sort of increases our awesomeness by being a personal genie who gives us what we want when we want it. The big story of God is that we, humanity, you and me are obsessed with doing things our own way and that breaks stuff. But God is constantly having to correct and rebuke and teach and shape and even punish humanity for this decision. And yet God is constantly holding on to his own promises to us that he will rescue and restore us. 
Just like Genesis ends with these promises hanging, when you finish the Old Testament, these promises are just sort of hanging out there. So you turn the page again to get to the New Testament. The New Testament begins, the prophets of the Old Testament have been holding on to and declaring the promise that one day Israel's messianic king will come and, though, and he will reign and he will bring justice and peace to all the nations. And the New Testament begins and we meet this man, Jesus. He comes from the line of Judah, of Israel's kings. He says that he has come to bring all of these prophetic promises to completion. He confronts evil and he resists it. He announces that the kingdom of God has come through him. He is God become human to be for Israel and humanity what we could not be for ourselves, what we could not do for ourselves. He takes on the consequences of evil in himself and his sacrificial love is more powerful than death. He fulfills the promise of Genesis chapter 3. He deals a fatal blow to the source of evil and in doing that receives a fatal blow by giving his own life. Jesus not only deals a blow to the, a death blow to the enemy of humanity, but he actually deals a death blow to the evil inside of humanity ourselves. And Jesus raises from the dead and he offers to humanity a new fruit, the fruit of eternal life that we have the choice to eat from. It's not a choice to be made better by some religion. It's a choice to be actually recreated and reborn by grace through faith. And now humanity has this choice represented by a new tree in the cross. Stick with the old way of being human or venture into this new way of being recreated by the grace of Jesus and follow him. And there is this promise that if we choose Jesus, we will actually be empowered and filled with his very spirit. The rest of the New Testament documents this Jesus movement of Jesus believers spreading in communities all around the world. There's problems, there's persecution from the outside, there's confusion and compromise from the inside. And so the New Testament is all of these movement leaders called apostles writing letters to comfort Jesus' followers and instruct them to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus and to hope for the day when Jesus will return again and change everything. And that leads up to the end of the Bible in Revelation that points to God, point, that points us to the time where God makes all things right. Evil is eradicated and humanity rules and reigns in perfect relationship with Jesus, even better than in the beginning. Every story in the Bible is part of this big story. And the entire big story leads up to and is about Jesus. Jesus is in every story. He's in every page. He is the resolution to every conflict. He is the healing of all brokenness and he is the restoration of all things. See, it is this big story that will help us understand all of the smaller stories. And it's this big story that helps us understand our own story. You are created by God to be in relationship with him and participate with him in blessing the world. You have chosen to define yourself by yourself in rebellion against him. But God is faithful. He is faithful to his promises for you and he is faithful to his purposes for you. In his son Jesus, he lived the life that you could not live. He paid the debt that you owe for your participation in the evil of humanity and he raised from the grave so that you can be born again as a child of God. 
Not only that, Jesus gives you this invitation to be filled by his very spirit, to be in relationship with him and have the power to participate with him like you were created for. That's your big story. And today, we all find ourselves part of God's big story. Things are tossing. Things are turning. We are experiencing the brokenness, the pain, and the fear of the broken world that we are living in. It doesn't all make sense. I don't understand all of it. And you may not be able to understand all of it, but we have to seek God in the midst of it. I want to encourage us to be anchored in the Word of God, to hear His voice, to taste and see that God is good, and to be blessed as we take refuge in Him, not in our own understanding. I want to pray for us as we close our time this morning that we would be a people driven to the Word of God. And you might be watching this this morning and realize that you don't have right relationship with God. You don't find yourself uh, knowing that you are recreated for the grace of, by the grace of Jesus through faith. I want to encourage you that right here, right now, you can step in to the fulfilled promise of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. I want to lead you in a prayer if that's you this morning. And, and then I want to pray for the rest of us that the word of God would be alive, that we'd have understanding by the Holy Spirit, and we would be able to bring hope to the world in a time of uncertainty through the grace, power, and presence of Jesus. Let's pray together. If you don't know Jesus and you want to make that decision right now, you can just kind of pray along with me. Jesus, I confess that you are God. I confess my sins before you that I have rebelled against you and I need your grace and your forgiveness. I repent. I want to turn away from the brokenness that I've chosen and I want to receive your grace right now by faith. Would you forgive me and welcome me into your family and make me new? And Holy Spirit, as you take out my sin, would you come and fill me with your presence? Fill me with your power and teach me to follow you. And for all of us, Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear your voice, that we would see your face. Holy Spirit, as we read your word, we expect to hear from you and be transformed by you. Would you give us open and hungry hearts to receive your word? And God, I'm asking right now that for every single one of us who is a follower of you, that as we go into your word, that you would empower us and mobilize us to be a part of your purposes in the earth today as people are so scared, so uncertain, so hopeless. Lord, would we be a bright and shining light for the glory of God. We thank you for your story. We thank you that we are a part of it. We invite you into our lives and commit to following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here at church this morning. Uh, let's be a people of the Bible, and I hope you have an incredible day. We want to thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can check us out on social media at Antioch Indy or go to our website, www.antiochindy.com.